guys, welcome back. Just a reminder, tickets are on sale for our conference next May 22nd through the 25th in Grafton, Illinois. And Brooks Agnew is one of the speakers. He'll be getting into some amazing information, just like we will be tonight. And I'm excited about that. But tickets are available at journeytotruthcon.com. That link is below. It's going to be a lot of fun. Come hang out with us. Live stream tickets are also available. Those are only $99 this year. So if you can't make it, take advantage of that option. Hopewell Farm CBD. Guys, if you're looking to try a new CBD, that stuff is amazing. It's incredible, uh, especially if you have any any type of chronic pain, uh, especially like my back pain. It's helped tremendously. And even if you have trouble sleeping, you know what CBD does, but their product is very clean, very clean. It's full spectrum, and I highly recommend it. You get 15% off all of their products with promo code JTTTHANKS, and that goes through the end of December. I believe it ends on Christmas. So take advantage of that while you can. And as always, 20% off all of our Teespring merchandise with promo code 20 and back. That being said, welcome to the show, Brooks. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, sir. Good to be here. I'm looking forward to the event in May. Yeah, yeah. So, so are we. Same. So are we. And guys, if you don't know who Brooks is, is a scientist, physicist, author, I mean, among many other things, a wealth of information um, just a library of knowledge, and we're we can go a million directions with this conversation. But you know, there's so much to get into right now. You've been at this for quite some time, and uh, you know, we thank you for everything you're doing. But what I'd really like to get into is a story you told when you were nine years old. You had some missing time, and that was kind of the catalyst for everything that happened since then in your life. So if we can start there and just you can go from there. Well, that's uh, that's quite a story. I. Uh... <clears throat> I went camping with my parents in the Sierra Nevadas in the summer of my, uh, I guess it was my 10th year. And uh, we were up around, I guess, 7,500 feet, something like that. And I think we were the only people in the campground. And uh, woke up on Saturday morning and I woke up before everybody, everyone, everyone else. My grandfather was in another tent and my mom was in my tent and I didn't want to lay around and no one wanted to get up yet. So I said, well, I'm going to walk up to the creek and do a little bit of fishing. And they said, yeah, 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 whatever. So I grabbed my tackle box and my fishing pole and I walked. It was maybe a thousand feet, maybe 1200 feet from our campsite up to where this creek was that ran through the campsite. So I uh, laid down my tackle box and uh, put a little lure on my uh fishing rod and cast it, I don't know, maybe a dozen times or something. But you know how uh, nine-year-olds are. They just uh, get bored pretty quickly, I guess. It was just casting practice, no fish. Right. And, um, you know, kind of laid around, skipped some rocks, uh, enjoyed the scenery as much as you can when you're nine, uh, and then picked up my pole and my tackle box and walked back to the campsite. And as I was walking back to the campsite, I noticed that there was that mint green, you know, Jeep pickup truck uh, sort of uh, parked at the campsite and standing outside of it was a ranger who was talking to my mother and she had her arms folded in that way. You know, moms always fold their arms like they're mad. <laughs> and I come walking up and uh, and they turn and face me as I'm walking up and they go, wow, where have you been? I said, what do you mean, where have I been? I told you I was just going to walk up there and, and do a little bit of fishing. I didn't catch anything, so now I'm hungry. And they said, well, you've been gone all day. And it was like, you know, close to dusk, not just after dawn. So that 
I didn't have that kind of passage of time at all. So anyway, we went through that argument. I didn't get a beating. Uh, we ate and went back to bed, and I thought everything was normal. But when school started about two weeks later, everything was different because everything came to me very, very quickly. And, you know, you remember, well, you probably don't know, but in the old days, we had this thing called the SRA readers. And they were uh, uh, green and yellow and blue and red colored short books. And you could read them and answer questions at the end of them. And what it did, it sort of graded you on how good of a reader you were, what your reading reading comprehension was. And I don't know, maybe there were a hundred of these things in this set that sits in the classroom. Well, I read them all. I just sat down and read them all. And then through the year, you know, we had questions from each one of those stories, and I knew all the answers. And I got in trouble for blurting out all the math answers instead of showing my work. And it was such a problem, in fact, that my parents pulled me out of school and sent me to military school for three years. Wow. So for being was, too smart? <laughs> yeah, I was climbing out of my skin. I just knew everything. And it's been that way ever since. And you think that's related to that incident in the woods where you had, I guess you would say, missing time? Do you yeah, have any I would idea? Say before that, I was just an ordinary, average kid. And after that, like my brother was nine years older than I am. So I'm, I'm nine. He's 18. So he's starting college. So he comes home from school. And of course, my mother was like, will you do something with your brother? So he just laid out a big piece of paper and gave me a pencil. And he wrote up in the top corner. Uh, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon. And then he gave me bonding rules for each one of those, like this one has two, this one has one, et cetera. He said, now connect all these together and fill up this piece of paper. So he thought he was giving me busy work. And he came back a short time later, and that entire page was covered from edge to edge all the way with those four atoms connected together by those rules in one big molecule. Hmm. And I remember him walking in the room going, holy crap brooks what did you just do what is this i said i don't know i just connected these things together the way you told me to connect them and then this is the result and after that i found myself at long beach state college speaking to college classes i don't remember everything about it but it was like being in a fishbowl for about two years it was just crazy mm -hmm. and so whenever wow. you had that missing time you i mentioned in a past interview that you think you weren't taken like by ETs or something, but you think more you slipped into a time bubble or what do you think actually happened? Or do you know? You know, I've gone back to that moment because people have made a, a thing about it. And I've talked to people who can just say they can do regression hypnosis and all of mm -hmm. this. I've never actually sat down and gone through it. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm a little paranoid about, uh, you know, turning my, uh, self-will over to someone else even temporarily right. so i never actually did that but i i for some reason when i go back there i just get this feeling that some introduction was made i don't know if i was taken off planet or put on a ship or or, or whatever but a tremendous amount of in information downloaded into me that day and it woke me up because there were other capabilities that came with it like a short time later, I'm standing on the front porch. My mother's there smoking a cigarette. And uh, it's just an ordinary day. And all of a sudden, I said, you know what? I I think the, I think the power plant's going to explode. And about 15 seconds later, wow. I have the newspaper article. 
I have I, when the boiler exploded, my mother cried, and it wasn't because the boiler exploded; it's because I saw the boiler before it exploded. Now, my grandmother was a gifted clairvoyant, very, but my mother was clairvoyant as a brick, and she hated that. So when it showed up in me, I think it scared her, and it sort of put a divide between me and the rest of the family because I had this these flashes of the future. Wow. I remember you saying that when you were in eighth grade, the newspaper came to interview you because of your math scores. And they asked you something about what you want to do when you get older. Can you tell that story? Yeah. So I'm at, uh, at uh, high school in, in uh, California. I can't remember the name of the high school, but it was off of Heil Avenue. Or, or, I'm sorry, junior high. I'm getting ready to go into high school, eighth grade. And the newspaper comes to interview me because... Uh, I'm one of the top math students in the state of California, and so it was kind of a notoriety, I guess. And my math teacher is the one that set up the interview. So the the reporterette comes, and she's asking all the ordinary questions, and then she says, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't even hesitate. I remember saying, well, I want to be an asteroid miner. Hmm. And she did not know what to make of that. I don't even remember the questions after that, but it was like, we hadn't even set foot on the moon yet. Okay. This is, this is 1968. It just, we weren't there yet. So it was so foreign to anything that anyone in this country would have ever thought of. And it was just so ordinary to me. Like we've already been there. We've already, we've already harvested uh, minerals on, on asteroids and brought them back to earth. We hadn't, but uh, that, that was the future that I saw. Right. Well, I thought you mm -hmm. described it as remembering like that from the past. It wasn't the future. Or did I misunderstand that? Well, yes, it's like remembering the future, seeing something in the future and then bringing the memory back to the past. And, and I think that's kind of what happened to me in my youth, which made me really not fit in. And in fact, when I wrote the book, Remembering the Future, I took that part out of the book. I took that whole story out of the book. And then before I published it, right before I said it, the editor said, look, why don't you why don't you put it back in? We really like that story. And I said, well, look, you know, I'm a professional engineer. If I put that stuff in the book and it gets out there and people, you know, start razzing me about it. And finally, I just said, you know what? You know, I think there are people out there that need to hear this. I think I don't think I'm alone here on this planet. I think there are other people who don't feel comfortable totally living here on this world they feel foreign to it so i put it in the book and it became a bestseller mostly i think because of that story but at least i was able to to share my ideas about technology with people right i mean obviously the information is fantastic and we all love it but people love a good story also uh, you know, and and that's just the nature of it. That's just the nature of it. And that's actually a good way to trick people into learning something. You know, if you can include those, it, it, make it enticing, they're learning at the same time, which, you know, that. So I want to fast forward now. I remember you talking about an experience you had in Trout Lake, Washington at Mount Adams that kind of blew you wide open. And, that, and you say you were 52 years old, and that's when your life actually started. And this is really fascinating to me. This is, uh, you know, life is kind of a, uh, a series of waking up and going to sleep and waking up and going to sleep because we get caught up in the third dimension. We get caught up in the, in the I have to earn money and I have to fill my garage with toys and there's really no room for all this metaphysical crap. So you, you sort of wake up and then you, you 
fall back into the the trick of mortality. So I get called by uh, James Gilliland, who runs this um, facility in Trout Lake, Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and he boasts that there are all kinds of UFOs that fly over his place, which I can attest there. It's pretty active. I've been there multiple but, uh, times. Yep. Yeah, Thanks, it's Eddie. a great place. He calls it the sanctuary. So I thought, well, okay, this is the sanctuary, you know, for people to come where they don't get bothered by the outside world. And uh, but then I realized, or maybe it was the sanctuary for ETs, but then I realized it was a sanctuary for us that we could go there and we could be ourselves and not have to worry about being criticized. So it's Saturday night. Uh, I'm alone in my. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not alone. I'm with three other people in my in my sort of room area. I, I, I stayed in a cot in the computer room, and we're meditating. And the windows open, uh, everything, and we're looking at Mount Adams in the moonlight. And uh, we all close our eyes, and we're we're meditating away. And I feel like this kind of padding, like a pulsing against my heart area, and I begin to hear music. In the background. So I think to myself, well, there's 300 and something people here. Somebody's playing music in the house. That sounds really cool. But as the moments went on, the singing began to become more clear. And it was it was like a choir. It was like a choir of, with thousands of voices in it. And as I listened closely, I could hear I could hear the bass and I could hear the baritone and alto and I could hear all the, the different of voices. And then, then I realized that they were singing words, you know, like sometimes you listen to opera and you go, gee, that really nice. Sounds nice. It's Latin or something, but then you begin to listen to the words. Well, that's what it was like. And the words that they were singing were these long extended words, but it was peace, love, and joy over and over and over again. And I thought that is just really, really cool. And, but I realized that no matter where I turned my head as my head, my eyes closed, the sound was the same. So it wasn't coming from outside my body. It was coming from inside my body. It was coming from this heart area. So then the music uh, sort of went quiet and faded out. And I felt like I had this conduit or this uh, umbilical tube connected from me to Mount Adams. It went out the window and across the countryside and, and hooked to the mountain. And that's where I guess that this pulsing was coming from. And then this voice came, and it was a male voice, but it was very soft, and it said, because you are quick to forgive, you are forgiven. And this hose disconnected, like an air hose disconnecting from my chest. And it kind of threw me back a little bit, which knocked me out of the meditation, which knocked everyone in the room out of the meditation. And I said, wow, did you guys, did you guys see that? Did you hear that? And they were like wide-eyed, like, did you see that? I said, what? And they said, well, while you were there, you were like shaking back and forth, not like a convulsion, but sort of, you know, waving back and forth. And there were all these gold plates and gold tablets and drawings and schematics and everything going into your back in the dark, and we could all see them. And that's what, that's, so I felt really weird after that, because that was kind of crazy. So the next morning I go downstairs and I look for, Angelica Whitecliff, she was there, and she's this uh, very understanding person, and I kind of thought maybe she would understand what I went through. So I went up and asked her, and I described the situation to her. She said, oh, Brooks, don't worry about that. That's called a download. (laughs) And I said, well, what was it? She said, well, over time, 
what'll happen is those things that downloaded into you are going to come up and they're going to be made manifest to you and you're going to understand what they're for. That's, that's wild. Wow. I, you know, I've had experiences out there, nothing that profound. I mean, they've been pretty profound, but uh, so this changed your life. Obviously I remember you saying like, even your physical body started changing after that, as far as like, um, didn't you wear glasses and you had, you just ditched <laughs> the glasses. What happened next? I had asthma since I was like four and a half years old. So I used a, an inhaler, you know, and a meta, like a nebulizer. And I wore glasses from the time I was like 13 because I was nearsighted. And at that moment, I weighed 252 pounds. Within a month, I didn't wear glasses anymore. I didn't have asthma anymore. Haven't had an attack since then. And I dropped 40 pounds. And I didn't, wasn't doing anything. It just fell off like it didn't belong there. And everything changed. I began riding like crazy. And uh, from from 2012 to 2020, I wrote uh, eight more books. And seven of them have been bestsellers. Hmm. And wow. what year were you at Isedi? The first time I was there was 2006. <clears throat> so that was August of 2006. Yeah. Wow. So that was, that's pretty powerful. That was, uh, that was life changing. And, and it, when, of course, waking up then at that age, well into my career, I didn't have a need to go back to sleep. And I didn't, I just stayed awake from then until now. And I think I've lived more life. I know I've lived way more life since I was 52 than the previous 52 years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's great. That's a perfect example. I mean, hearing that story alone is a reason for people not to give up. I mean, it's never too late. It's never too late. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People think, oh, I'm 40. I've already messed everything all up. No, 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 not at all. You can step out of that life and into a new one. All you have to do is make the decision. Right. Right. And, and that segues into something else I want to talk about is manifesting and consciousness. And you know how that actually applies to the real world. Well, I, I let me go back just a little bit to kind of the beginning of the the consciousness argument because you hear a lot of people talk about it. You hear word salad all the time, and I don't blame them. It's it's the knowledge set that they have, and it's as far as they can go with what what they're feeling. But in physics, we we start out with a primer and the primer is that there are four forces in the universe there's electromagnetism there's gravity and then the strong and weak molecular charges that kind of holds a third dimension together and we've the reason we've wrestled with that i mean it was easy to come to the conclusion but the reason we wrestled with it is because it applies one way for the macro that is to say planets and galaxies and superclusters and things like and another way for the quantum for atoms and for electrons and for uh, frequencies and things like that, the wave functions. And so we've been struggling trying to find this theory of everything, a sort of a, a key that will work in both worlds, the quantum world and the macro world. And we have not been able to do that. What has happened is that some of my colleagues, Amit Goswami and, uh, you know, Kip Thorne and other, uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't say radical thinkers, but forward thinkers in the science, We've realized that something is missing in these four. We realize that there is a causation that needs to be there. Now, Einstein called it God, and that's fine. Um, 
and other scientists have commented about that. I read a biography of eight mathematicians. You'd think it'd be really boring, but it wasn't. They all talked about receiving pure knowledge in dreams that opened mathematics up for them. So the science itself has now accepted that consciousness is now the fifth force in the universe. And we've moved them around over time. And now we almost universally agree that consciousness is the, the primary force in the universe and everything else is after it. So this is a big epiphany for, for me and my colleagues, because it's not something that you can put on a scale or you can shoot a pyrometer at and measure consciousness, but we know it's there because we know not. We can tell when it's there. We can tell when it's not. So the idea about sentient consciousness, not consciousness of rocks or trees or nature or planets, but actual humans is that we are the only beings that we know of on this planet that can perceive time. If you don't believe me, try to teach your dog about tomorrow. It's just not going to work. <laughs> That's a great point. That is a good point. And because we can perceive time, our observation has an effect on time. Not just its elapse, but also what happens in the past and in the future. We can reflect on things. We can observe things from any point, from the past, from the future. We can be in the present and go both directions. We can... Instead of walking down the road with a looking through life through a drinking straw, like most people do, uh, punctuating their lives with paychecks or family vacations or, God forbid, waiting until they retire, uh, you open the drinking straw up and you can now see 180 degrees at one time. And now you've got a bigger perspective on what I call the average reality, which is the mathematical sum of the activity of all the sentient beings in the universe. That's the average reality. And we're somewhere in that cloud of reality, either as a tail condition or right there in the middle with everybody else. I mean, if we go to a baseball game and we actually go to the game instead of watching it on TV and we walk out on the upper decks and you look down and you say, wow, that field is really green. <laughs> it's true. It is. We all agree that it is. But in reality, the green you see and the green I see are slightly different yeah. because the electrical impulses that are made by the rods and cones in your eyes are different than in my eyes. But we agree that it's green. So we have an average reality that it's not brown. It's green. And that is how we go forward in, in life. And we accept all of that. But the truth is that either consciously or unconsciously, we manipulate that all the time. Two people can be doing the same thing at the same time. They can be dancing together. And one is lost in bliss, totally in love, and the other one is looking at his watch. They're doing the same thing in the same place at the same time, but they have different perspectives, right. different realities all together. Mm -hmm. So if this is the case randomly, why can't it be the case on purpose? Right. Right. Well, and that's what, unfortunately, that's what the dark ones know. They they put that they they constantly repeat a lie or put out what they assume to be true until it becomes a reality. Because we. Yeah, why does it do that? Why does the truth that they put out on all the channels that that hits us and we put our consciousness on it, which by the way is real energy, why is it that their reality becomes manifest and ours doesn't? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, it's because of resonance. Resonance. It's resonance, right? And you can do resonance, you know, several different ways. You could do it with very loud noise, or you could do it with a very quiet noise, applied at the right time, over and over again, and you create resonance, and it begins to build on itself. If you look at throughout history, not the last 25 years, but before that, all the real trends, all the real changes in the world started with one or two people. It didn't start with a big crowd. It didn't start with a million-person protest. It started with one or two people, and then that changed the world. They're trying, and by the way, this is counterclockwise energy. This is in the Fibonacci. We're talking about a creative, regenerative energy. The other energy is clockwise, and it's male-dominated, and it's destructive energy, but it requires tremendous noise to make it go. And that's what they use, what I call the global media empire, to do. They shout it from every single electronic device that they can reach. And that's how they make their reality manifest. Right. Yeah, and we could, we, and it's our job to remember that we have that ability also. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start at your event in May. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You might as well be there, participate in it. So, you know, you yep. were talking about going back and forth, being able to go into the past, into the future, and all that stuff with consciousness, right? Well, what is that? What's your what are your thoughts on time travel? Like everybody listening to this channel has already accepted the fact that it's possible and most likely being done already. Uh, I know I don't understand the physics behind it. I'm sure you have a better idea of how that works. And the fact that you assume that you maybe slipped into a time bubble at age nine uh, tells me that you obviously have looked into this. Yeah, I have. Let me, can I share my screen just for a second? Um, yeah, let me make sure that you can. Let me um, see here. If I hit this, you should be able to see that frustum, right? You can see that? Yeah. Right. Okay. So for a long time, I, I had this in the book. I thought time was like a segment and we could perceive sort of before and after this segment. And this is the formula for a frustum. And my editor said, you know, if you put this math formula in the book, it's going to cut sales in half. But, but, because nobody's into differential equations like I am, so they really don't get this. So I thought, how how do I, how do I explain what time is really like? What it means uh, to move through time? And what came to me was that uh, time is not a mathematical formula like this. It's more like an observation. So it looks more. And I created this three D image so that I could put it on the screen and explain it to people. Time is like this, like a 3D funnel, except we're not at the point of it. We're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of this funnel. And behind us is the past. And the past is not a straight line. It's kind of an effervescent tube. And inside of it are all the things that we have passed through up to this moment in this time construct. The reason it's not a line is because we can go back and we can reobserve the past. And we can change how we're affected by it. We can resolve things. We can clear things, pain and mistakes. And if we missed questions on a test, we can go back and get those questions right again. And then now in our minds, we've aced the test. So life changes as we alter or 
reflect on this past. In the immediate future, you notice it doesn't expand out to infinity. It's kind of truncated. And the reason is because of all the choices we've made up to this moment. We didn't go to school. We got married too young. We decided not to move, or we did move. But the choices that we made in the past affect where we are right now and what we can do with our lives for the next, say, six months to a year. But after that, it's the potential of all potentialities. And if we can manifest a dream, either something we want, like a truck or a motorcycle or a house, or something we want to be, or something we want to do, like I want to go to Egypt, I want to visit the pyramids. We don't think about the money, we just think about that image. And the clearer we can make it, the easier it is for the universe to manifest that for us. And all we have to do is follow that path and resonate with it, and that future will occur. And I, I teach people this, and it's it's kind of strange the way it occurs with people, but uh, I tell people, Let's see if I can stop sharing my screen now. Um, I don't know if I can end share. Oh, you. there we go. I got it. I got it. Okay. The button was over on my third, on my third display. Oh, so uh, I was talking to a barista one time, and I was at a conference, and I was experimenting, I guess. And I said, so uh, what's your dream? He said, well, I want to buy a truck. I said, oh, I see. So is it a black truck? He said, no, it's it's white. Ah, okay. Well, is it automatic? Nope. Four-wheel drive. It's a stick shift. It's lifted. And we got all these details out. And after I said, so then I said, well, how much does it cost? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, we need to have all the details we can get about this truck. But here's what's going to happen, Mr. Priest. When we come down off this mountain and you go back home, you're going to see that truck everywhere. You're going to see it at the mall. You're going to see it on the freeway. You're going to see it at a car lot. That truck is going to appear before you. And that's how manifestation works. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And it's like almost like a vision board. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a book a long time ago called The Secret. Yeah. And Rhonda Byrne did a great job writing it. She did it in kind of story form. It really it went nowhere, actually. She got an investor that printed up like 100,000 copies, and they gave them away to real estate agents. And these real estate agents liked the book so much that they sent it to Oprah. So Oprah, after getting about six or eight copies of this book, like, oh, you've got to read this book. She finally said, okay, 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 I'll interview the author. And that is what made Rhonda Byrne famous, was the interview on Oprah. So I got it. I read the book, and she was on to something. You look at a picture in some fashion magazine or some travel magazine and you cut it out and you stick it on your fridge with some magnets and you look at it every time you go to get a glass of ice water or a ham sandwich. But millions and millions of people did this and nothing happened because they were missing the key component. And that was the resonation. You can't just keep looking at the future. You have to look around you in the past to see what's vibrating with that energy that you just put out there in the future. And those are the things locally that you could put your energy into and the vibrations go right back to the future and build that thing for you. Right. Mm, it's like the, it's like the bell effect and you ring the bell and what what it what it's affecting around it is right, right. The, and you can't just keep hold on to the bell and geez wailing it with a hammer right it's just 
Right. It's, What's reacting to the bell is is basically your next step. Right. I, now think about that in terms of what the media does. They know this information so that they put out fear of this and that and this and that. And then you believe it starts showing up more and more and more because everyone starts. Making There's an it. old saying that which we once abhor, we soon tolerate, then embrace. Mm -hmm. so they don't come at you with the end game because we would it would be so repulsive to us that we would we would have an allergic reaction to it. So right. you're right. They give us the little tones here and there. This is okay. And therefore, this is okay. And therefore, this is okay. And before long, you're embracing the dark side. Right. Right. So going back to a, completing my thought about consciousness, though, uh, I've heard you describe that, you know, the universe, it all started with one consciousness. You've described source itself as a consciousness. Mm -hmm. And the way you described it is that we are all source, right? You said we aren't separate from the source, but we're participants of it. Well, we think of source as this, this single almighty intelligence. And my friends and I call this the big snooze when the universe just all collapses that back down to nothingness, to a, to a singularity again. And source had this I am moment. It became self-aware, but it was alone. It was solitary. And it decided to divide itself into two. And for a long time, I wrestled, and I've got this in my lab notebooks behind me. How did that division occur? I mean, what physically actually happens to source? Is it like a cell, you know, that divides, like chromosomes split? And, and I decided it's got to be the same mathematical principle that we've been applying for the last 20 minutes. It's got to be that square root. Because you're talking about not a flat condition. You're talking about some spherical existence. So it took the square root of itself. So now there were two equal versions of source. And one or both of them began to continue that process until there were trillions and trillions of sources. But, you know, if you take the square root of anything, I don't care how big it is, it doesn't take very many iterations before you approach one, right? Because the square root of 16 is four, and the square root of four is two, and the square root of two is one point something, right? And then the square root of that's one point something. something. You approach one, but you don't actually ever get to one. However, what, are ha what happens is these soul mates are created in pairs, but they're very, very close to being identical, except that they begin to have mortal existences. And as they have mortal existences, they begin to grow in stature. They get more experience. They have pain. They have babies. They have success. They have failures. And they gain knowledge, iteration after iteration after iteration, hundreds of lives, thousands of lives, millions of lives. And in the scriptures that says, you know, be therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been handed the big end of the bat and told to go to the plate and hit a home run. I don't know how to be perfect. It's been confusing to me ever since I heard that statement in Sunday school when I was a kid. The truth is that statement is confusing because it's translated wrong. The word's not perfect in the scriptures. It's complete. Be therefore complete, 
even as your Father in heaven is complete. Be therefore like the original source. And how do you do that? You do that through experience. You do that through mortalities over and over and over again until you grow back to the point where now you are source, all of it. And the process is we are participating in this creation. And that's been the process for billions and billions and billions of years. Right. And that's exactly right. why some people call religions traps, because it puts God outside of you. It puts yeah. source outside of you and not within you. And right. it, it puts a cap on what you're capable of. I have this uh, series of books called The Birth Trilogy. It's three books. People call it The Birth Journey. But it it talks about this this process of of returning of this this end times science fiction story that talks about earth itself coming together as a spirit earth and a temporal earth into the earth we live on right now it's actually a living being with which we have a, a symbiotic relationship right now and over time what's happened is is the consciousness of man becomes more wicked Earth has an allergic reaction to it, and it rises up with an earthquake or a hurricane or a, something, a tidal wave, and wipes out mankind down to a few tribes again, and they start over again. Well, now there's 8 billion of us on this planet, and about half of us are wicked and half of us are good, and the planet cannot decide what to do with us, whether to destroy us or whether to release its bounty to us. So the planet itself is now beginning to split. It's beginning to divide again into a higher vibrational earth and a lower vibrational earth. And the race of man is dividing with it. And we're becoming less and less aware of one another. And over time, what will happen, and I don't know how long this will be, one world will have all higher vibrational beings on it, and the other one will all be third dimensional beings, and we will not perceive each other anymore. That's what Dolores Cannon talked about all the time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Norwell yep. or Newerwell. Nice. And we can actually see evidence of that when we look around. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the world, it's splitting right before our eyes. It definitely, definitely feels that way. That's for sure. But there's also like a spiritual alignment occurring at the same time. I feel like, like this unifying energy or this consciousness, it's like um, bringing, I guess, some of us together. I guess it's bringing each group together in its own way. I don't know. How would you describe that? Well, it says in Matthew that it, the end times won't come or I won't return until first there comes a falling away. Well, that, that term falling away uh, can also mean graduation. Like most of the people that I know that were raised in a church, whatever it was, somewhere in their doctrine, they were taught that this is the true church and all those other churches are that they're bad. And we hate them. And it's been the source of wars for, I don't know, since long, as long as history has been written. It's a brilliant plan if it was Satan that came up with it. I'm going to create all these religions, and I'm going to make everybody think that they're worshiping God, when actually they're hating all other religions. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful convert, uh, confusion. But what's happening now in the United States anyway, because we survey this all the time, the biggest church, the biggest religion in this country are the nuns none of the above <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say wait that's a religion yeah because they graduated 
whether they're Baptist or whether they're Seventh-day Adventist or whether they're Mormon or whatever, they're graduating by the millions. They don't need religion anymore because they're directly connected to source. Right. Yes. And that's the amen to that. And that's the ultimate goal for, right. you know, for all of us. And that the realization that a lot of us need to come to. Well, it's interesting that the indigenous people that were here kind of felt that way. They didn't have a, you know, central religion that bound them all together. They all just believed in a great spirit. But when we came here, when we established our towns, we had, we established what's known as a township. And a township, technically, economically, was 640 acres. You place a church in the middle, and then you build the support community around it, and then out to the farms. That was a township. So you can make the argument from the original uh, compact of people that came in wooden ships and landed in Plymouth Rock to way on up into early 1800s, that it was religion that brought us together in, into communities. You can make that argument. So maybe religion was necessary in that point because it created a commune, a kind of community of people that had a like belief. But as they began expanding and stepping on one another's territory, that blended away. And in a couple hundred years, you find where we are now. Right. I actually agree with that. I actually agree with that. It makes a lot of sense to implement religions in a primitive civilization uh, for that exact reason, because otherwise they'll end up killing themselves. I mean, they if you give them a higher power, give them something to believe in, it would force them to want to do better and unite. And whenever they don't quite have that understanding themselves to just naturally do that. Except then, it, but then it can become a double-edged sword where you have like things like the Crusades where they start going around killing other people in the name of their religion and their God. Either convert or we kill you, you know, like you yep. know, these holy wars essentially. And uh, and then and then another religion that's created kills wants to kill this religion because there it is, it's right, and you need to convert to mine. And then it so it can do both, but it, it all comes down to the consciousness of the people, is really and then. I feel like once your consciousness, you like outgrow it once you get to a certain level where you're like, okay, yeah, well. Once your consciousness gets to a certain point and you realize, hey, wait a minute, I could push this thing around. Right. I, I don't need to have that that person that I go to to make that connection for me. I can right. make it myself. And, and I'll need to be saved by an outside God because God is everything. It's within me. Yeah, the whole like that's what Jesus saved. actually taught when you actually do your research. He did not teach he was your savior and to worship him. He taught the exact opposite, actually. He said, You are just like me. And he's tried to say the kingdom of heaven is within you. That's what he said. He said, Don't you know your God? Think about it. In the big picture, Jesus didn't come here to support the church no. at all. No, Everybody opposite. Reads the Quite, book, gets back. But he didn't, he didn't come here to teach us of his divinity. We already knew that. Mm -hmm. He came here to teach us of our divinity. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. And it was necessary, it, even, even though it turned out the way that it did. Yeah, they killed him because he was a threat to the church, to the system. <laughs> like, right. it's actually the opposite. 
Yeah, that counterclockwise energy conflicts with the clockwise energy. Right. But you can see what happened when it when it's left to itself, the counterclockwise energy does grow. People do get healed. People do get saved, so to speak. They have this mighty change of heart where the fruits of that change of heart are love and charity and long suffering and patience. And, you know, those are the fruits of the spirit. But the other way, it is how much can I put in my barn? How much can I hoard? We were talking about billionaires the other night over scotches and cigars. Hmm. And we were we were asking the question, why do billionaires even exist? I mean, I know, I know why they exist, because they they accumulate money to the point where it becomes self-regenerating. But what happens to a billionaire when they get to that point where they literally cannot stay awake enough hours to spend all the money? Right. They they become miserable. It's like a I don't know any happy billionaires unless they're really all about you know tearing down what has been built around them. They're all miserable. They're all hateful. They're all evil. I don't know why that is, but it is. And yet everybody covets that. They want to be that billionaire. They know hey, when I get my billion, I'll be different than that guy. Well, because no, this, because the system that allows you to become a billionaire is built on evil. So when have you fully submerged yourself into that system, inherently you become that. You become unhappy and you're in that energy. So I, there's no way around it. I don't, and, and a lot of people around. sell their soul to become that in the first place or to become oh, a yeah. huge celebrity in the first place. You have so to you have... almost sell your soul to the to the. So what system. is a soul worth? Right. Right. What is a soul worth? Well, it's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. So if you look at what Lucifer or Satan is willing to pay for a soul, you begin to realize how important we are. I saw this question asked, and it just so impressed me. I'll share it with you. The guy says, if I'm going to give you a million dollars right now, no questions asked, now what would you do with it? And immediately the guy says, man, I got plans for that million dollars. Absolutely. I'll take it. Well, there's one condition. The one condition is at the end of the next day, you die. Oh, oh, well, wait a minute now. Uh, I don't know if I could, ex I don't, no, I'm not going to accept that. Wait a minute. You're willing to trade a million dollars for one day of your life? Yeah, I am. Then why don't you act like it? Why don't you act like a million dollars is the value of the next day and spend it that way? Yeah. Mm. Powerful. That's, that's, that's powerful. That is. It is. Well, that goes back to just living in the moment, being present. Mm -hmm. And none of us is guaranteed the next day as well. So, right. yeah, I you think I, you got time. You, you don't know that, you know. <laughs> I got I killed on my motorcycle in May of 2012. And the cop who revived me was taking my helmet off and he was asking me my name and all that kind of stuff. And I said, wow, that was so easy. It was. I wasn't gone for very long, but dying was painless. I had two overwhelming feelings. One was regret. I didn't get to do all the things I wanted to do. And I didn't get to tell everybody that I wanted to. I love them. And the other one was, 
you know, I'm really in bad shape here. Is that bone sticking out down there? So <laughs> those that, but there was no pain at all. It was just like the most peaceful transition you can imagine. I lost my fear of death, but I renewed my zeal for life. And that's the end goal. I mean, understanding there, yeah. there's a whole there's a reason they want us afraid of death because if we're afraid to die, then they can control us and they can make us wear a mask or make us you know stick stuff <laughs> do in, anything inject they stuff can, into our body. We'll yeah. do anything because we're afraid. So I mean, right. that's the ultimate. It's and it's ironic that you had to die to understand there's nothing to be scared of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to be afraid of. We are eternal beings, and we're just having a mortal experience. Right. Exactly. Right. I want to go back a little bit where we were just talking about selling your soul and, and what that actually looks like, because people can do this without even realizing that they do it, but their own ego or greed will sell their soul for them. And that's just as far as all you're doing is agreeing to something like if you want fame, right? If you want fame, uh, popularity, knowledge, whatever it is that you want, that comes with a sacrifice. You have to give up something to to get that. And just by signing that record deal or, or agreeing to do whatever it is, in a sense, you're selling your soul. It doesn't look like you're selling your soul because because you're not signing the paper that says I'm selling my soul. Well, I'm I think within limits, we can be anything we want to be and we can do anything we want to do, except I mean, we can't just jump up in the air and fly like Superman because that's a violation of the laws of physics. But uh Pretty much it's true. But what, what some people do, because I do think that uh, dark forces have power, dark entities have power, they do answer prayers, and they do give blessings. If you sell your soul to Satan and say, I want a golden voice, I want to be able to sing perfectly clearly in four octaves, and I want to become you know, a world-famous singer, fine, no problem. You give me your soul, I'll give you the voice. I wouldn't accept that I actually heard a singer tell me this, that she had sold her soul to Satan to have her voice. And it is a phenomenal voice. But that's scary. Because sooner than she thinks, this life's going to be over, and that debt is going to be paid. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it comes with... I mean, sometimes it comes with misery. You know, you might get the one thing that you're asking for, but it comes with all the stuff that you weren't asking for. <laughs> you remember the movie Bedazzled? I I don't think yeah. I've ever seen it. It Fraser. was, it was yeah. yeah, it was crazy. There was a female like devil, and mm -hmm. she would grant wishes. And uh, Brandon Fraser was like wanted this girl. And he kept trying to anticipate what she wanted. So he would go to the she-devil and say, well, I want to be the greatest basketball player that ever lived. So she would give him that blessing, but then she shorted him in other areas. So it was just it was just like that. Yes, I'll give you a blessing, but I'm going to take something from someplace else. That's funny. right. It's a trick, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's how the dark works. It's like they have to get you to agree on, on something. It's like they they have to still operate within the laws of free will. So they mm -hmm. trick you into giving up your free will to them. Yeah. And it's kind of like what it's what I see the media does and the system does is they, they try to get you scared or get you in a state where you will agree then to what they want to do in the first place. 
Because yeah. like you said, if you do it all right, people will reject it. So they got to like trick you into doing it on uh, asking for it, you know, essentially. So right. and I agree with the misery part because I, I think of news actors. They they say, oh, I want to have I want to make a lot of money and I want to be famous and I want to be on TV every day. And so they say, well, fine, we'll make you a news actor, but you have to read the words we give you. Right. Yeah. Right. Perfect. You have example. to read the script. You cannot do actual journalism. You are a puppet. But you right. get the you get the, the the fame and notoriety that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Right. So, what are your thoughts on like what do we see taking place right now on the planet? You know, on the surface, it looks like a lot of doom and gloom. But if it's if it's really all just doom and gloom, then why are we even here in the first place? Because we're all here on a mission. We all have a purpose. I'm just curious to know what your thoughts on that are. Well, the doom and gloom we hear because of what I call the global media empire, they play that record every single day that right. this war is this way and this disease is that way and your sexuality is this way. And they play that album over and over and they're very organized about it. The mm -hmm. Let's call it the Rebel Alliance, the people who uh, know enough truth to know that's not true. For instance, what's going on in Ukraine isn't actually a war between Russia and Ukraine. It's a war between the global syndicate and the middle class of the world. Those right. sanctions, they don't hurt Russia. They hurt us. They hurt the middle class of America. They hurt the middle class of Europe. They're killing them, right. killing them. And this is a proxy war using Ukraine against us, not against Russia. It's the cabal versus humanity in reality. Yeah. Exactly. We're seeing our tax dollars pour into a rat hole in Ukraine. And then magically, they come out other holes into people's pockets and buy elections. And we're watching right. it in real time. And there's nothing we feel we can do about it. We vote our guts out and nothing changes. And they rigged the elections anyway. They, they rigged well, yeah, the, the election system actually is rigged. Where exactly. Yes. Right. People you don't even rude. have to run a campaign. Right. Joe Biden's sort of like, we're going to run a marathon. All these candidates are going to line up. Ready? Boom. They shoot the gun. Well, one of the candidates just steps onto the shuttle bus. Yeah. And just drives to the winner's circle. And he gets out of the bus. He goes, oh, the winner. And he gets yeah. the That's oh, a great analogy. Perfect yeah, analogy. That's the best way to describe How it. dare you try to overthrow an election? Joe Biden got 81 million votes. Oh, what a, <laughs> it's amazing. And, right. and on a small scale, Katie Hobbs won the election. What? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> right and we're supposed to just buy that and then you're oh and you're an election denier if you question if you even question that this could be cheap you're an yeah. election denier so you so we create this derogatory term to try to one dismiss the people that are seeing the fraud or seeing how things aren't adding up and to scare people that would think about questioning it and to not like oh i don't want to be called a conspiracy theorist or right. election denier be labeled yeah. so it, it's all these psychological games they constantly... see i didn't explain that to you you already know it because right. you're part of the rebel alliance you have this consciousness that's telling you wait a minute that that's not actually happening everyone else around you believes it which you think they're crazy because wait a minute you're looking up in the sky and you're telling me it's dark but i can see the sun for myself it, it's right. actually light out mm-hmm Right. That's how that's how plain it is to us. Right. 
pee on you and tell you it's raining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like that you call us the Rebel Alliance. Uh, yeah, I like that. Because it's a it's true. We we really we really are. I mean, we're all here for, on this mission, right? We all have a purpose. It looks like it's doom and gloom, but it's not because ultimately, like you said earlier, we're splitting. The planet's splitting in two. Yeah. The planet's splitting yeah, and, in two. And you can't call it a revolution because a revolution means, you know, that there's a leader. And we don't have one. We don't have a leader. This is decentralized. This is a resistance. And I'm I'm I think of like revolutions that happen. They start but they never finish the way they're supposed to. It's sort of like the lion makes the kill, but it's the hyenas that eat the carcass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What we have to do is remember, we don't have a leader. What we have is a central idea. We have a central hope. And you already know it, and no one told you. You just see it because you're in this frequency range. And I think there are a lot of people like that. I think there are billions of people like that. Look at Brazil. Look at China. Look at France. Look at these places that are saying, wait, no. And by the way, here are my words. And it holds up a white piece of paper. Because yeah, they know yeah. they can be put in jail if they put words on it. So they put nothing on it. And we still get it. Mm -hmm. right. 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 It's true. Uh, you said before, like everything we do affects the universe. So do everything with purpose. And I think that's something crucial that we all need to think about and apply every day because we're only going to create that if we have purpose to what we're doing, like just doing this show in itself right now is creating that ripple effect. That's going to sure. ultimately affect the universe. And I just want to, I'm bringing it up to put the reminder out there because even like myself, sometimes we struggle, like, what am I doing? Like, am I just going through the emotions, but what are we actually doing here? And I think those little reminders are great for people listening that might be going through the same thing. Yes. Um, whether we are aware that our consciousness is having an effect or not, we are. And our consciousness actually affects the equation of this average reality individually we do just like voters except it, we're now an energy presence so i have said if i can affect the universe accidentally just by waking up today and being a force at my factory why can't i do it on purpose why can't i align my energy with something i consciously want to happen and I find out when I go to conferences, and I think that's kind of why they locked the whole country down, because we were ready for the Roaring Twenties. Mm -hmm. We were yeah. so ready for it. 2019 was the year of awakening, but 2020 was going to be the year of action. And they locked us all down. I did one conference on the 7th of January, and I was booked the whole year. Didn't speak at another conference for two years. Jeez. Mm, we lost the momentum because we could no longer see one another face to face. We couldn't shake hands. We couldn't embrace. We couldn't have dinner together and sing together. They broke our resonance. Mm -hmm. But we're back. Yeah, we yeah. are. And absolutely. And they're still trying to keep they're us still from, trying to keep us from traveling. You know, yeah. you can't other countries can't come here because of certain mandates. And... But it backfired on because how many people started waking up since 2020, since the Lots. Right. Lots. 
Well, every th- I say this, like I sound like a broken record saying this, but they shoot themselves in the foot every step of the way. Anything yep. they try to do to hold us down just has a be- an opposite effect and it makes us stronger, you know, and they're not going to keep us down no matter what happens. Yeah, it is. They do do it, though. I mean, I still see as crazy as it sounds. I saw one today driving her car alone wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah. it's unbelievable. I, I still see people today doing it. Mm-hmm. Me too. Well, yeah. you, you can always tell. I don't watch the news, but you can always tell when more fear is being pumped because you see a rise in the people wearing masks. Yeah. You see more people wearing masks. I'm like, okay, I know. I'm that, seeing it right now, actually. Yeah. I know the media is saying that. something <laughs> right now, but it's interesting because I just read an article that Denmark actually has gotten rid of the term COVID and it's now back to the flu. They're, yeah, they're not yeah. recognizing COVID as this pandemic virus anymore. And it's just back to the normal flu. And this year, even in the States, the flu is back. You know, we have. And no one talked about how Sweden didn't do any of this stuff. Yeah. And had among the least deaths and the least mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. So and they can't explain that. Heart, what breaks my heart is 128 million adult Americans have been jabbed. Right. And now they're dying. And they're all the ones dying. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's really sad. Gosh, you watch the videos of these deaths and it just, it's creepy, just weirds you out how they just look around like something's there to, to gather them up. And then they just fall to the ground like a sack of hammers. Right. Well, that brings me to the point of the split and people making a decision right now. And ultimately you know, depending on where you were at in 2019 really mattered because what came next in 2020 was the deciding factor for which direction a lot of people were going to go. And the people that signed up for this made their choice. They made their yeah, choice when they signed sure. up to get that put in their But it body. wasn't really a fair choice. It wasn't no. an informed choice. Exactly. Exactly. It, that's true. Not a lot. It was forced upon people and not everybody wanted to do it. Some people did it against their will. I'm not saying that as a blanket statement, but it's just one way to look at it. Yeah, it is uh, heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see this, how the genetics now has changed in the body. And instead of getting rid of these metals like chromium and aluminum and, you know, the, we gather them up all the time in the foods we eat, but our body sheds the metals off. After you get the reverse transcription error written into your DNA, you now gather those metals up and they deposit in your arteries and veins and they create these kind of resilient rubbery clots that are insoluble and eventually it will kill you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And not to mention that, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but the nanotechnology that's in there, which actually brings me to the topic of AI and what's taking place there with this whole transhumanism thing. I mean, it's it's scary, but it's not because I always say like AI can what's AI trying to do? It's trying to become human, which tells you that we have all the power. Yeah, some of it is. I mean, uh, there's artificial intelligence in a lot of things, and I don't think they're all alike. But if you look at beings like Sophia, they're mm-hmm. experts at at answering questions and semantical uh, games because they can out think a human being that is to say they can uh, calculate all the possibilities and pick the best one in a flash where we go by intuition and feeling and but the 
But the difference between AI and us is that we have desire. We have desire and we have an urge and we love and we have feelings that uh, certain people, when we get close to them, there's a layer of cells underneath our skin called glial cells. And these glial cells respond to certain frequencies and we put off these frequencies. When certain beings get close to one another, these glial cells begin to resonate with one another, something about it, and they bond. They just bond because they have this great feeling when they touch one another. AI doesn't have that. And believe it or not, I can walk away from the USB cord. Really, I can. I was born in the middle of the last century before we had cell phones. I can just set it down on the table and walk away. I exist. It does not. Right. Great point. Yeah, great point. It does not have a soul. Yeah, it needs us. It actually needs us. That's a great point. And, you know, I think I could walk away from it, too. I'm, I mean, I'm ready to walk away from it. I can't walk away from a Harley, though. Can't <laughs> right. Well, the internal combustion engine is here to stay. Right. Uh, so you're planning a inner earth expedition, or at least to go explore where the entrance might be at, at the poles. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm kind of a, an explorer, and I think it was go back to like 2006, 2007. Uh, well, actually, before that, we were writing the Ark of Millions of Years series, and somebody handed me the book called Our Hollow Earth, and I read it. And I thought it was amusing, and I set it on the shelf, and I forgot about it. it. Just didn't mean anything to me. But then my friends at JPL uh, went out in space, turned around, took a, a picture of Earth, and they noticed auroras over both poles at the same time. That is not what they expected to see, because our concept was that the auroras are caused by the solar wind, you know, striking the Earth. And the Earth, because it's tilted, only one pole is kind of facing the Earth at any given time, winter or summer, and that's when these auroras occur. Well, they hurried and they put together a, a space program called the Themis program. And this was five satellites placed in and going, they launched them, and their specific mission was to discover the source of the auroras. And I thought, how strange that they would rush a space program, spend all that money to discover the source of the auroras. Don't we already know? And then they published their erroneous paper after they took the measurements and said, the auroras are caused by cosmic bullets that occur in our upper atmosphere. And uh, when the blast comes down and hits our upper atmosphere, that's where the auroras come from. What's a cosmic what bullet? Mean? Yeah, cosmic I said, bullet? what the hell is a cosmic bullet? They didn't explain anything. So I thought, guys, you just you just piqued my curiosity. So I started looking into more things. I started looking into geological, oceanographic, uh, atmospheric, uh, electromagnetic. All this evidence started coming together and started to point toward the idea that we do not live on a molten ball floating through space and we live on tectonic plates like cornflakes in a bowl of milk. The planet is made differently. And then the measurements started coming in. Carnegie Science did measurements that uh, backed up the measurements that Japan had made by measuring the frequency of our core. 
We don't have a molten core. It's a solid core made of iron. <clears throat> well, a lot of times we've, we've said, no, 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 that can't be because the frequencies are all off. And they are. But the reason they're off is because the iron is matrixed with xenon in a big crystal. And that makes sense because when we do partial pressure measurements of our ocean and our atmosphere, the xenon is missing. 90-something percent of the xenon is gone from our atmosphere. We don't know where it is. Now we do. It's locked in the core, matrixed with the iron. So now we're discovering things about our planet that support the idea that planets may form as hollow spheres. So I had the hypothesis, if that's true, then that means, and the evidence shows that there's another ocean on the inside of our crust, crashing waves on a shore inside of our crust. Yeah, that's been proven. That's been proven scientifically, right? Well, actually, what happened was uh, Washington University, Dr. Y Sessions, uh, got his grad students who were working for Dale Pizza, by the way. They went through 600,000 seismograms and they took all the information and put it in a computer and modeled it. And you can see the vibration of the water crashing on the shore inside the planet. And these inside are inside the planet listening stations. And they did this beneath the Atlantic, right? Yes, there's an Arctic ocean, a, a, a sea, the, the Arctic Ocean underneath the crust of the Atlantic Ocean. So if that's the case, if there are two bodies of water that are separated by the crust, then they have to have two different life ecologies. One's exposed to the sun and the other's exposed to this inner core. So we theorize that that opening between those oceans has to be somewhere above the Arctic Circle. And in 2008, the Arctic cap opened up for the first time in maybe 20,000 years. And the following summer, they netted 1,500 new species of rays in Malaysia. They do this quite often, and they never see 1,500. These were fully developed different species of rays, like manta rays and stingrays, mm -hmm. and fish that we haven't seen in millions of years, like frilled sharks and dorsal squids. And we never seen that stuff. We got fossils of it, but we have never seen a living one. And yet, there they were. So we said, there's got to be an opening through the crust, and the two oceans are blending through this opening. So let's go and see. Let's get a ship and let's go and see if we can find this opening. And the only ship that's capable of doing it is a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker that sails out of Murmansk, which is north of St. Petersburg. But right now, you can't even buy Russian dressing. There ain't no way we're going to rent a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker and do this expedition. But we are planning on doing it. As soon as everything settles down, those ships are there. They're willing to contract with us. It's expensive, but we think we can make a good return on the investment and go and see if we can find this opening. That sounds that's amazing. amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And that's what I love about you because we talk about all the woo stuff on this channel and everything, all these, you know, uh, fantastical concepts and, you know, uh, this amazing stuff. But you're like, you bring the science to yeah. it. You bring the science it's to it. And you're. I realize there's an esoteric part to it, that there may be some cosmic portal or whatever, but guys, I need verifiable, repeatable, measurable data. So that's what we're going after. Right. Yeah. And there's right. lots of stories like there's Admiral Byrd's supposed testimony. Yeah. There's the Smoking God supposed testimony. There's other. Edadorfa. Don't forget Edadorfa. 
which by yeah, the way yeah. we, did, we followed it up we went to mammoth cave we took every tour then i sat down with the tour operators they've been there their whole lives mm-hmm. and i asked them be honest with me what's the deepest part of the cave you've been in every nook and cranny this cave system 360 feet Nobody walked into the inner earth from Mammoth Cave. And even if you could, it's 900 miles. Right. Then if it was a 45-degree angle, it would take you so long. A caravan of people could not carry enough food and water to sustain you for that walk. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it's interesting. You know, we have all these test these stories, these testimonies, whatever. Well, then there's Shangri-La and Shambhala yeah. and all the, the ancient so-called mythology we went to tibet we went to tibet went on the upper plateau and we spent a week looking for that and we interviewed all kinds of way out of the way temples up in shigatsu 14,000 feet nobody has the answer there right well it's been described by certain people like you can't you'll never find the physical entrances because they're not there you have to be at the light at the right like vibration to be invited in by these beings yeah and like the people uh, B- Billy Woodard said that the reason you can't find the uh, holes at the poles is because there's a holographic overlay. It looks like clouds. Even if you went there, you wouldn't see it. You have to be invited in. There's UFOs monitoring the poles at all times. And, you know, there's there's that type of information. You, you can consider it or not. It doesn't prove anything, but it would also make sense that these things there's telos which lowell johnson has his own story that he claims he was been just in. a bunch of times too i've chased every one of these yeah, stories yeah. physically right. myself went there shot my own film did my own digging i have my own facts right nice. yeah. Reliable. right yeah and that's that's important too but it's um yeah so yeah i think it's but here's here's my argument it's like if you go out to try and find a sasquatch with a gun you're not going to find the Sasquatch because they know your intention. It's the same with the, you might know exactly right. where that entrance yeah. is, but your, your motive is to prove that it exists and to show the world. But somebody else who goes there, who just wants to have an experience that doesn't care what anyone else thinks, they might get invited in because of their intention. If they know your intention is for reasons other than, you know, actually having the, the experience, you might not be invited, maybe. If you think about it, it makes sense that they don't want it proven beyond a shadow of doubt to the whole world. Because then what's going to happen? The militaries and the the not the very low vibrational systems and people are going to try to start, oh, we gotta we gotta invade it. We gotta go down there. And you know, that's the last thing they want. If you think about it, it makes sense. They don't want that. Right. You know, right. Exactly. We have uh we've established a channel on a satellite that has access to that area of the planet so Which we're going to, we're going to stream from the ship directly to the satellite and beam down to two receiving stations one in europe one in the us and those receiving stations will let everybody see what we see so you're actually going to live stream from the expedition or attempt to right anywhere. right we're going to stream four channels and you, it's pay-per-view, so it's like $20, and you can stay with us for the entire 15 days, 24 hours a day. And you can just flip between the channels so you can see what's going on in different parts of the ship. Because we felt exactly the way you do, that if somebody tries to stop us or block us or prevent us from sharing the information, um, we want the world to see that happen. 
And likewise, you know, we're going to be the only consciousness signal for 400 miles in any direction. These are the most treacherous oceans on the planet. They can only be done by these ships. Mm -hmm. So if there is intelligent life, let's say there are UFOs that park inside the planet or on the bottom of the ocean, because we're talking about 4,000 meter deep ocean here. Right. If they come up to see us, we get it on film. You see what we see. That's great. That's amazing. Now, how long have you been planning this? Well, I actually joined the expedition in 2006. At that time, uh, uh, Stephen was uh, handling the expedition. He died in October of 2007 of rapid onset brain cancer. So I thought, well, that's the end of the expedition. So they called me, the board called me a couple months later and said, look, you're a big project manager. Why don't you take over the expedition? So I said, well, okay, let me see the books and see what you got put together. And they had sold seats on this boat for about $25,000 a piece. Not a lot of them, but enough. And I said, look, the issue is, I think, if we take a boat full of rich tourists up there, that's not going to be a mission I want to be involved with. So let's return all that money. And let's do this as a true scientific expedition. And let's see if we can reach our 40 million fans that we have built up over the years. See if we can reach them and get them to fund the expedition. Because it's going to be about $5.5 million to pull this off. Three and a half to rent the boat. And then you got to have post-production work, satellite work, uh, to get all this information out there. And we're bringing 125 scientists from eight universities around the world, plus film crews and experts. Uh, 125 is not a big crew, let me tell you. you. You fill it up in a hurry. And I have so many people, I have thousands and thousands of people that have written me and want to be on this journey. Some are even willing to pay to go. But that is not, that's not the core of what we're trying to accomplish. We right. may only get to do this one time, once. Mm -hmm. And we want to, and you know, it's sort of like, going on a camping trip and forgetting something. There's no going back and getting that. Once that boat takes off, that's it. Everything you have with you is all you have. So you got to take it all and you got to be ready to measure everything. Mm -hmm. How yeah. long is, of a trip are you expecting it to be? It's 15 days. So we're leaving from Murmansk and we're going to Helsinki, which is actually north, uh, for one day. And then we leave the following day and we head towards San Jose Islands. And then after that, it's we have a chart. We know where we want to go. And then we have a five-day option. And the five-day option is if we're out there and it's now the point of no return and we need to start heading back to port and we see something, we can exercise the option and stay as much as five more days. Right. So 15 days total are... Okay, Plus five days. So we could stay right. 20, but then we got to get out of there because it's going to start freezing up and, and we have, well, we don't want to get stuck in the ice. Mm -hmm. And but we are in an icebreaker, but we're talking about, we're exploring 10,000 square miles in 15 days. So we're making eight, 12, 15 knots the entire time we're at sea. And we're taking technology with us. We're taking uh, what we call drop darts, which we developed which are sample darts we throw over the side. They're eight or seven something feet long. And they go down to the bottom and they sink a pipe into the 
bottom and take a core sample. And then they inflate a nitrogen bag, come loose and float back to the surface. The transit takes about two hours to get down there and all the way back up because it's deep. And then we recover it, bring it to, to the boat, take the core sample, put it in the freezer and drop it again. We think if we're close to this opening, we should be able to find fossils that are from that inner ocean on the bottom around this opening. And then we have one more piece of technology, which <clears throat> is sort of looks like a, it sort of looks like a, a sled, but it's uh, right now only crafted to go to 1500 meters. That's as deep as it can go. It's going to take $5 million to upgrade this to go to 4,000 meters, but it has an articulating arm on it, a light and a camera. Of course, it's cabled. So 4,000 meters of cable. Wow. You can't make any headway when you're doing this because it'll just pull it right up off the bottom. It'll strain that cable and it'll just snap it. So you got to sort of go very slow, like one knots. So you can take some pictures. Is it worth the $5 million to do? I don't know. We're still thinking about that. But we yeah. can take the samples. The darts cost about $1,200 a piece to make. And they cost about 80 bucks per trip to go down and back. Right. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of money just for a few pictures, if it works. And, yeah. and how much does that much way. How much does that much cable weigh? Oh, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, the ship can carry because it's got a helipad. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. And it has to be you yeah. know, put together as you drop. Mm, yeah. Well, that's incredible. Wow. I, I'm excited. So do you have an estimated time when you think this is going to happen or when you would like it to happen? We we go from we have the six week window in the summer that's like mid uh, July until the end of August and then you have to get out because it's going to be winter before you know it up there it freezes at the rate of something like fifteen hundred square miles a day it freezes so you have to really hustle to get out of there uh, in fact the this ship has actually rescued other icebreakers that got trapped because the ice formed so fast they couldn't get out. In fact, my ancestor, Sir James Ross, discovered the North Magnetic Pole in 1831, and he lost his ship the first time. The ice crushed it. They had to dump out on the ice, winter right there, and in the spring, another ship came up and rescued them. And the next year, they got another ship, and they went up and found the North Magnetic Pole. Wow. But, I mean, this year, next year, obviously not this year, but... Yeah, well, the plan is you have to have your deposit in by October of the previous year. The deposit is about one one and three quarters million dollars. That just reserves the boat. Then you got to pay another $1.75 million by May. So you have five months to raise that money. Then you leave in July. And, of course, there's a lot of logistics and planning to go between those times. We still have to get all the scientists from their universities with their gear to Moscow, and that's a big plan, too. So it is at least a year. I would say if we were going to plan a date and this uh, disagreement we have going in Ukraine were over today, we would not be able to go till 2025. Right. So it's still it's still quite a ways out, but it's quite an undertaking, and I understand there's it a is. lot of planning. I mean, what power... Been... We've spent close to $85,000 so far, and that's all come out of my pocket. 
but I'm happy to do it. It's pure science, and the data is is blows my mind every day. It's not like I'm gaining data that says, oh, well, that's the end. We're not doing that expedition. No, it, it actually inspires us. We have uh, Washington University. We have Cambridge. We have Stanford. We have uh, one university in Australia. They don't want me to say their name on the air. Uh, we have Scripps in San Diego with lots of universities that have crews or have staff that they want to send with us to do their experiments and gather the data. Of course, we're going to get it all on film. All right. That's great. Yeah, that's incredible. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been incredible. We covered quite a lot. Uh, can you please let people know how they can find you, how they can listen to your podcast? Yes, easy to do. The best way is to go to brooksagnew.com. That's easy to do. You can find it in Google if you forget my name, but brooksagnew.com links to everything. My books are on Amazon, and my books are kind of unique from other people's books that if you buy a book off Amazon, either the Kindle or the paperback version, I will give you the audio version for free. Cool. So nice. if you're not a great reader, don't worry about it. I read it for you. <laughs> is it audio? Awesome. Is the audio the audio version your book? Uh, your voice? Yeah, it's my voice. I couldn't afford a professional. So. <laughs> That's better though. I kind of I like that I like better. It. Me too. too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because you get you get to read it with your own emotion as as it was meant to be. So. Right. Ah, uh, well, thank you so much. This has been great. Yeah, we, we look forward so to officially meeting you at the conference. We're looking forward to your presentation. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, it is. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. It's going to be fun. Uh, guys, if you, if you haven't decided yet, uh, tickets are still available. Obviously, it's quite a ways out, not till the end of May. So you have plenty of time. And my newsletter is free. doesn't cost anything. And the link to that conference is in my newsletter. So we're sending it out to my database twice a week. Great. Nice. Well, thank you so thank much. You. We really appreciate that. We appreciate that. It's going to be fun. So come hang out with us if you want to, guys. Uh, thank you so much, Brooks. Um, thank you guys for joining us. And until next time, have a great evening. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>